Namaskaram. Um, that was Sadhuam singing verse 13 of Aksharam on Malai, which is the verse that I'm going to be talking about today. <coughs> what Bhagavan says in this verse is, What that basically means is Arunachala, substance of Omkara, you for whom there is not equal or superior, who can know you? Um, and if we uh, expand it to uh, a bit more explanatory translation or paraphrase, that is Arunachala, inner and ultimate substance, reality, import or referent of Om, of Omkara, that is the sacred syllable Om, you for whom there is not anything or anyone equal or similar or superior, uh, who other than yourself can know you as you actually are? Um, omkara um, means the syllable om, um, which uh, uh, which is considered most sacred in all the major religions of Indian origin, namely Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism, and Sikhism, in all their various forms. And there are many diverse interpretations and explanations of its deep significance and meaning. Various possible etymologies have been proposed for it, including the suggestion that it may originally have been derived from the ancient Dravidian word arm, which still survives in modern Tamil and is a third person singular form of the verb are, uh, which means to be. So uh, arm means it is and is therefore commonly used as a word of affirmation, meaning yes. Uh, if this suggestion is correct, then Om may originally have signified being or existence, uh, particularly in the sense of what, what is or what actually exists, Uladu. So Sato Uladu, that may have been the original meaning, um, but that is just a suggestion. Nobody knows what the original etymology was. Um, but Om goes back very to very ancient times. It is traditionally chanted at the beginning of all Vedic hymns and mantras. And in Vedic rituals, it is used as an expression of affirmation, confirmation, or agreement. But in the Brahmanas, um, it, it, Brahmanas are the portions of the Vedas that explain uh, ritual, the rituals and so on. In the Brahmanas, it is explained that Om is more than just an ordinary affirmation, because whereas other words of affirmation, such as Tata, are human affirmations, Om is a divine affirmation. That's what it, it that's an explanation given in the uh, Aitariya uh, Brahmana. Um, the meaning and significance of Om is discussed in much greater detail in several of the Upanishads. 
And though their explanations differ, they all indicate either explicitly or implicitly that what Om ultimately refers to is Brahman, which is the real nature of ourself, Atmasarupa, uh, namely Satchit, pure being and pure awareness. And some of you Upanishads emphasize this by declaring explicitly that Om is Bra Brahman itself. So it is the name of Brahman and it is Brahman itself. Um, <clears throat> one of the uh, deepest explanations of Om is um, very famously given in the Mandukya Upanishad uh, and is elaborated, elaborated upon by Godapada in his Karaka. This Upanishad begins by declaring in its first verse that this syllable om is all this, implying everything that seems to exist. That it is all that was, um, implying in the past, all that is in the present, and all that will be in the future. So it's, uh, it's everything past, present, and future. And it is also trikala tita. That means it, it is what transcends or is beyond all these three times. So it is it is everything that seems to exist, including the time and space in which they seem to exist. And it is what is beyond these things, what transcends or is beyond these things. Um, then in the second verse, uh, it says that all, all this is Brahman. That's in the first verse, it says Om is all this. In the second verse, it says all this is Brahman. Um, that this Atman namely oneself, is Brahman. This is one of the Mahavakyas. I am Atma Brahma. This Atman is Brahman. It's one of the four Mahavakyas, the great Vedic statements that declare Jiva Brahma Aikya. Jiva Brahma Aikya means the oneness of Jiva and Brahman. So all the Mahavakyas are indicating that we ourselves are Brahman. Tattvamasi, uh, Aham Brahmasmi, this particular Mahavakya, I am Atma Brahma and Pragnanam Brahma, they all indicate that we are Sulfa Brahman. That is what is called Jiva Brahm Aikya, the oneness of Jiva and Brahman. Uh, so, it, as I say, it says, all this is Brahman. That is the second verse of the Mandukya Upanishad. Or actually, I say verse, but technically they're referred to as mantras. So, in the second mantra, it says that all this is Brahman. But this Atman itself is Brahman, that Atman, namely ourself, is Brahman. Um, uh, and, um, and that this Atman is uh, Chatuspat. Chatuspat means it has four padas. Padas means feet or quarters. So the juxtaposition of these first two verses clearly implies that Om is Brahman. Because in the first verse, it says Om is all this. In the second verse, it says Brahman is all this. So we have to infer from this that, um, that Om is Brahman itself. Uh, so whatever is, is said of Om can also be said of Brahman and vice versa. Therefore, since the first verse says all this is Om, so and the second one said, Brahman is all this. So being all this, Brahman is all that uh, is part, all that is past, present, and future, and also what is beyond these three times. Likewise, being all this, Om is this Atman, uh, namely ourself, and hence it has four padas, uh, quarters of feet. Um, 
what is meant by saying that this Atman, which is Brahman and therefore Om, has four padas, um, feet or quarters, is explained in the subsequent verses. But to understand this explanation with respect to Om, it's necessary to understand how Om is phonetically analyzed. The syllable Om consists of a long vowel, O, and uh, followed by a mute consonant. That's a consonant without a following vowel. Mm, M, that in English we write M, but it's pronounced M. Mm. So, O, M. Mm. Uh, superficially, therefore, it seems to consist of two distinct units, O and uh, M. But uh, O is, uh, is formed by a smooth and euphonic coalescence of two other vowel sounds, namely R and U, as we can understand by considering how we form these vowels, these vowel sounds with our lips. That is, we pronounce R, uh, whether it's a short R, as in like in the U in up or utter in English, or a long R, as in after or arms, um, by allowing the air to pass out through open lips. Whereas we pronounce oo uh, as in put or uh, pull by allowing the air to pass out through lips that are almost closed. And we pronounce o as in om or onus or open uh, by allowing the air to pass out through lips that move from being uh, open to almost closed. Oh, we, uh, um, so it, it uh, thus the transition from R to U uh, forms O. So O is analyzed as consisting of two matras. Matras means measures, moments, durations, or units of sound, namely R and U, uh, which is which are the first two of its four padas. This is why you sometimes see om spelt in English as A-U-M, but it shouldn't be pronounced as aum. That is, that, is, uh, that is misleading. It is om, because the o is the transition from r to u. Um, so that is why um, uh, uh, om is, is, though it consists of two letters, um, it, it is uh, considered as three matras. Uh, three distinct matras, R, U, and M. Um, but uh, the third uh, the first two matras are R and U. The third matra, and also the third pada, is M, which is a nasal consonant formed by closing the lips. So the closing of the lips that begins with the pronunciation of O is completed with the pronunciation of M. So in, in other words, when we pronounce o, Om, we begin with our mouth open, allowing the air to pass out. Then we uh, close the lips and finally come to M, which is uh, the closed lip. So Om is a, a, a very naturally formed sound by um, first uh, going from R to M. It's, it's just a, a smooth closing of the lips. Um, R is generally in most alphabets of the um, of the world. R is the first letter of the alphabet because we st we start by forming sound 
by just, I mean, the simplest sound of all is ah. We allow the air to pass out through our mouth. Um, so that's the, the, the beginning of all, letter, all letters. And that when we say om, we're going from that open mouth to the closed mouth. Therefore, since we can interpret open lips as representing pravritti, pravritti means rising activity and outwardness. So when we open our lips, the air is passing out. That's like out, uh, allowing the mind to go outwards. That, that, this, I'm just saying this represents that. And closed lips uh, are as representing nibriti. Nibriti means withdrawal, subsidence, and inwardness. Um, so one way in which we om can be interpreted is to say that it represents the transition from pravritti to nibriti. In other words, in the clear light of Bhagavan's teachings, we can say that Om represents ego uh, turning within and thereby subsiding into its source. That is, the nature of ego is to be outward facing. So, so that is the pravriti. When ego turns its attention back within and thereby subsides back into its source, that is nibriti. So Om represents that transition from the going outwards uh, uh, to uh, subsiding back within, from pravritti to nibriti. Um, so, uh, as I say, in the clear light of Bhagavan's teaching, we can say that Om represents ego turning within and thereby subsiding back into its source, which is the infinite silence of Satchit, pure being awareness, I am. Therefore, the fourth pada is said to be amatra. As I said, matra means a, a, a moment or a unit of sound. A matra means the absence of any matra or absence of any sound. In other words, a, a matra uh, uh, represents, uh, implies silence. Um, so that, but, but as I say, the fourth part is said to be a matra, I think in the I remember correctly, in the last of the, the 12 mantras of the um, mantras or verses of the, um, of the Mandukya Upanishad, uh, it is said that the fourth padra is amatra. Um, so that amatra is silence, the silence that remains after the utterance of Om. That is, Om begins by with the air going out, the lips close, and it comes to Im, and then results in uh, silence. Um, and so this silence at the end of Om represents our real nature, which exists and shines eternally as I am, and which remains alone as infinite silence after, after Manonasa, the permanent dissolution of ego and all its pro uh, progeny. So uh, the remaining that is so I've talked about the first two verses of the Manduku Upanishad. The remaining ten verses or ten mantras um, explain these four padas in detail, both with respect to Visatman in verses three to seven, and with respect to Om in verses eight to twelve. Um, but uh, a, a brief summary of its explanation will suffice here, except for verse 7, which is the most important verse. That I'll talk about a bit more, in a bit more detail. So in verses 3, verses three and 4, describe the first and second padas as being the jiva in waking and dream, respectively. Whereas verses 5 and 6 describe the third pada 
as being what remains when the jiva is merged in sleep. Then, as I say, the most significant verse in the whole of the Upanishad is verse 7. So what verse 7 says is that um, what is considered to be the fourth pada is Atman. Atman means oneself, which is what is to be distinguished, uh, discerned or known, thereby implying that it is Atmasurupa, the real nature of ourself. Um, that is, when we, when we use the word Atman, it, Atman simply means oneself. So depending on the context, Atman in some contexts, it can refer to ourself as ego. In some contexts, it refers to ourself as we actually are. Ourself as we actually are is what is called Atmasvarupa, the real nature of ourself. So, but in this case, in this context, when it is saying that uh, this fourth part is Atman, that means it's our real nature. Um, uh, and this, uh, this verse 7 uh, describes um, this, uh, describes Atman, our real nature, mostly in negative terms. Um, it's, uh, what the descriptions it gives are, um, it begins, na'anta uh, pragna, that means not knowing or not the knower of the internal. Uh, that implies that it is not what knows the internal world, as the world of dream is described in verse 4. And then it says, na bahis uh, uh, pragnya. That means not knowing the external, implying that it's not knows what knows the external world, as the world of waking is described in verse 3. And then it says, na uh, ubeyata. Uh, pragna. That means not knowing both, implying that it's not what knows both the internal and the external, the internal world and the external world, that is. Um, the, so here, internal doesn't mean internal in the sense of our own real nature. It means the internal world, the world of dreams or the world, the mental world. Um, and then it says, na pragnana gunnam. That literally means it's not a mass of awareness or mass of knowledge. This is referring to verse uh, five, where it is um, where it, it it is implied that all the knowledge of multiplicity that exists in waking and dream merges and becomes one in sleep. It becomes one single undifferentiated mass of awareness. Um, from which it subsequently re-emerges. Um, uh, so when, when it when this uh, verse seven says now pragnana ganna, what it implies it is not the it's it's not the 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 mass of all, all the, the mass of awareness in which all other knowledge has merged, but is experienced in sleep. So basically, he, these. Uh, First few statements are, are saying that, that our real nature is something distinct from the jiva in uh, dream, from the jiva in waking, and from what remains in sleep when the jiva is merged. Um, it's something beyond all those. And then it goes on to say, napragnya, that means not knowing or not the knower, implying that it is not something that knows anything at all other than itself. And then it says, uh, na apragnya, not non-knowing, 
uh, implying that it's not something that does not know. So it's neither that which knows other things nor that which doesn't know, uh, know other things. Um, and then it goes on to say, adrashta, or in some versions it's, it's put as adrishya, which means not seen, implying that it's not something that can be seen or known by anything other than itself. And then it says, abhibhahara, uh, Bibyahara, uh, not something that can be done, practiced, transacted, uh, acted upon, used or associated with. That is, all these are descriptions of our real nature. Um, and then it says, agrahia, not something that can be grasped, implying it's not something that can be conceived or comprehended by the mind or intellect. And then it says, alakshana, not something that has any marks or characteristics by which it could be indicated or defined. I mean, it says achintia, not something that can be thought of or conceived. I mean, it says abiapadesia, not something that can be pointed out, indicated, named, defined, or spoken of. And then there's a particularly interesting um, description of it. Ekatma uh, Pratyaya uh, Sara. Uh, what that means is Sara means the essence, core, or innermost substance. Ekatma Pratya Pratya has a has several meanings, and it's interpreted various ways. One of the means is, or, or Pratyaya is um, belief. So in some translations, you'll find it translated as belief in the oneself. That's not at all what is meant here. It's got a much deeper meaning than that, obviously. Pratyaya, uh, it, uh, the basic meanings are uh, uh, knowing things for certain, cognizing, ascertaining, or clear awareness. Um, it also means deep meditation or contemplation. So I think what Ekapma Pratyaya here means is uh, deep meditation or contemplation on and consequent ascertainment, cognition or clear awareness of oneself, the one. Ekapma means, Ekapma is a compound of two words, Eka and Atma. Atma means oneself, Eka means the one. It implies the one without a second. So uh, Ekapma Pratyaya means uh, meditation or contemplation on and consequent awareness of oneself, the one, implying the, the one that alone exists without any other. Um, so uh, in the light of Bhagavan's teachings, we can interpret this. It is the, uh, the, the essence or core uh, or inner substance revealed by this practice of meditating on our own real nature. That's how I I would interpret this, which is because that's that's most close to uh, Bhagavan's teachings. So if, when we meditate on ourselves, the essence or the core or the innermost substance that we eventually is revealed, our own real nature, um, that uh, that is revealed by um, our, um, our meditating on ourselves. In other words, by our being self-attentive. Um, 
And then the next statement is also a very important one. Prapanja upashama means the calming, pacification, cessation, or extinction of prapanja. Prapanja is a word that is often used in Sanskrit to refer to the universe. It's um, People often explain it as being, the universe is called prapanja because it uh, consists of uh, five elements, but actually that is not the, the, the real meaning of prapanja. Panja, it comes from the verb uh, 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 pach, which means to spread out. So the reason uh, pancha means five is if you spread out your hand, you have five fingers. So that's how the the um, pancha came to mean five, but the, the basic meaning of pancha is uh, spread out. So prapanja is that which is spread out. In, in other words, the, the entire world of objects or phenomena, both internal and external, both the internal world and the external world. So when it says prapanja upashama, it means it is that state in which the appearance of the world has completely ceased. When we know our real nature, what remains is just our real nature. The, uh, the, the world seems to exist only in the view of ego, and ego is just a false awareness of ourself. So when we know our real nature, the world will cease to exist. Uh, that is what's implied here. Um, so that, it, in other words, prapanja upashama implies the abs that it is absolute silence, which is the one fundamental reality that alone remains when all this appearance, namely the entire world of phenomena, has ceased to exist. And then the next description of it is shanta. Shanta means calmed, pacified, subsided, or ceased. In implying that it's the infinite, eternal, and immutable peace that alone remains when ego has ceased to exist together with all its progeny. Then it describes this as Shiva. Shiva means what is auspicious, propitious, favorable, kind, tender, benevolent, gracious, beloved, pleasing, happiness, well-being. That is, Shiva is a beautiful word in Sanskrit. It's got so many meanings. And of course, it's the name of uh, Arunachala Shiva himself. He's Arunachala Shiva. Um, and finally, it says Advaita. It is non-dual. That, that implies it is one only without a second. So all these are, is a description of our real nature. So this, this verse 7 of the Manduka Upanishad it is arguably one of the most important verses in all the Upanishads because it gives such a, uh, a clear description of what our real nature is, or rather what our real nature is not, because it's, we can't, our real nature cannot be adequately expressed in positive terms. It's only in, in, in negative terms. That is, it's not this or that or anything. It is just pure being. Um, so, uh, this, as I say, this, this among the descriptions of, of of our real nature, the fourth pada, but are given in uh, this verse, uh, it says that this fourth pada is neither pragna, means knowing, nor apragna, means not knowing. This implies the same as Bhagavan implies when he says in the first sentence of verse twelve of Uludunapadu. Arivu Arayameyum Atradu Arivu Ame. 
that means what is devoid of Aribu knowledge and Ariyame ignorance is actually Aribu uh, knowledge or awareness. And he also says the same in verse 27 of Upadesha India. There he says, Aribu Ariyameyum Atra Aribe Aribu Ahum. A slightly different word, but it amounts to the same. That, that means only Aribu, but is devoid of Aribu, and Ariyame is Aribu. Aribu means knowledge or awareness, Ariyame means ignorance. Um, so, what he means in these two verses by Aribu Ariyameyum, uh, knowledge and ignorance, is knowledge and ignorance about anything other than, our, than ourselves. So the awareness that is devoid of such knowledge and ignorance, or knowing and, or, and not knowing, is pure awareness. And hence what he implies in these two sentences is that pure awareness alone is a real awareness. That is, knowing anything other than ourself is not real awareness, it's not real knowledge. Uh, as Bhagavan also says in verse 12 of, um, of uh, well, in, the, in various verses, several verses, or he implies it in several verses of Wuludunapdu. So, why is this so? Because as he goes on to explain in the next two sentences of uh, verse 27 of Upadesha India, Unmei Idu, this is real. Arivadaku uh, Ondru Ille, there is nothing, there is not anything for knowing. What that implies is that this, namely this uh, state that is devoid of uh, knowledge and ignorance about anything other than ourselves, this alone is what is real or true. Because in the clear view of ourself as pure awareness, there's not anything other than ourselves for us either to know or to not know. Um, that is, since nothing other than pure awareness actually exists, there's nothing else either for it to know or for it not to know. So it is completely devoid of both knowledge and ignorance of anything other than itself. Therefore, what is implied in this seventh verse of uh, Mandukya Upanishad is that the fourth pada, which is Atman, meaning ourself as pure awareness, is not any kind of knowing or not knowing in the normal sense of these terms. Though we as pure awareness always know ourself, our knowing ourself is not a knowing like any other kind of knowing, because knowing anything else is an act of knowing, whereas knowing ourself is not an act of knowing, since we know ourself just by being ourself. As Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Upadesha India, just the previous verse of Upadesha India, there he says, Tanai iritale Tanai aridalam. Uh, being oneself alone is knowing oneself. Tane rendatradal, because oneself is devoid of two. Tanmaya nishte idu. This is tanmaya nishta. What that implies is being oneself, that is, being as one actually is, without rising to know anything else, alone is knowing oneself. Because oneself, that means one's real nature, is devoid of two. That is, it is devoid of the fundamental duality of subject and object, knower and, uh, ob and, thing, and uh, thing known. And it's also devoid of any possibility of, of being divided as two selves, one self as a subject, to know the other self as an object. This is Tanmaya Nishta. 
Tanmay Nishta means the state of being firmly fixed or established as Tat. Tat means that, implies uh, the one infinite reality called Brahman. Um, so the, the word he used in this verse, the opening words of this verse, Tanai Iritale, being oneself, or, or literally means being as oneself. But in English, we don't usually say being as something, we say being something. So being, being as oneself or being oneself means being as we actually are, namely as pure awareness. And this is knowing ourselves as we actually are, because the nature of pure awareness is to always know itself and nothing other than itself. Therefore, we know ourselves just by being ourselves. Therefore, all the descriptions of the fourth pada uh, given in verse 7 of the Mandukya Upanishad are uh, descriptions of this state of pure awareness, which is our own real nature. So as is said in that verse, the fourth pada is Atman, ourself, meaning ourself as we actually are. And this is what is to be distinguished, discerned, or known. Um, so from all this, we can see what an important verse that verse 7 is. Um, then uh, verses 8 to 11 of the Mandukya Upanishad say that this Atman, which was earlier said to have four, four padas, is Om. And the, the uh, three matras of Om, namely A, U, and Im, are respectively the first of the four padas. Sorry, are respectively the first three of the four padas. So A is the jiva in waking, U is the jiva in dream, and M is, uh, is what remains when the jiva is finally merged in sleep. Finally, in the, the last verse, the last mantra of the Mandukya Upanishad, uh, Mantra 12, says um, that the fourth pada is a matra. A matra, as I explained earlier, means the absence of any matra or unit of sound, implying the silence that remains after the utterance of Om, and that it is indeed both Atman and Omkara. So it's both ourself and it's uh, the syllable Om. Uh, and this verse describes the syllable om, it applies uh, some descriptions to it, uh, which are the same, some of the same descriptions that were used in verse 7 to describe the fourth pada, namely abhibhaharya, uh, 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 what, uh, not what can be uh, acted upon, used or associated with, prapanja upashama, the cessation of the entire world, Shiva, auspicious, and Advaita. These are all descriptions of Omkara, which is said to be the fourth pada. This final verse of the Mandyuka Upanishad then concludes by saying, Sam Vishyati Atmana Atmanam Ya Evam Veda. That means whoever knows such. Uh, enters oneself by oneself. That's a literal meaning. What that implies, whoever knows such means whoever knows uh, the fourth pada as the infinite silence that is one's own real nature, enters or merges in or merges oneself in oneself by just being oneself. So it's a very beautiful ending of that to Upanishad. That is, we we enter or merge ourselves in ourself by ourself. Uh, 
Um, how do we do that? By knowing our real nature. That is the implication. Um, by saying that this fourth pada is both Atman and Omkara, what this final verse implies is that though Atman and Omkara are said to have four padas, their real nature is only the fourth pada. So the other three padas are all unreal. That is, the other three padas seem the other three padas are basically the, the jiva in waking and dream, and what remains in sleep when the jiva merges there. Um, these three padas seem to exist only in the view of ourself as ego, whereas in the clear view of ourself as we actually are, there is only one pada, which is what is called the fourth, and which is the infinite and immutable silence of Satchit, pure uh, being awareness, I am. The term that is used to refer to the fourth pada in uh, verses 7 and 12 of the Manduku Upanishad is Chaturta, which means the fourth. But in his Karika, Godapada refers to it as Churiya uh, in, uh, in some verses and uh, Churiya in, in at least one other verse. Uh, Churiya and Churiya are both, they both mean the same. They both mean the fourth. So they're alternative words. But these are the terms that, uh, by which it is generally referred in later literature. That is, generally it's referred to as Churiya with a long I or just as Churiya. Um, however, though it is known as the fourth, it is not actually the fourth state, but the only existing one. As Bhagavan clarifies in verse 32 of Uludunapdu Anubandam, what Bhagavan says in this verse is, Nanavu Kanavu Twil Nadu Vaku Apal Nanavu Twil Churium Namatu Enum Achurium Adei Uladal Tondrum Mundru Indral Churium Churia Vatitum Tuni. Uh, what that means is, as, as often is the case, Bhagavan had packed a lot into this verse in very few words. So the basic meaning, the, the literal meaning is, for those who experience waking dream and sleep, waking sleep beyond is called the fourth. Since the fourth alone exists, since the three that appear do not exist beyond the fourth, be assured. That's all. That's what the basic meaning. So we have to, 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 to understand the meaning, we need to slightly expand it. So for those who experience waking dream and sleep, waking sleep, which means the eternal and immutable state of pure awareness, which is beyond these three, is called Churiya, the fourth. Since that Churiya alone exists, and since the three states that appear, namely waking dream and sleep, that appear or seem to exist do not exist, be assured that Churiya is actually Churiya Batita or Churiya Tita, beyond the fourth. Um, the, uh, the first sentence of this verse, he, Bhagavan is saying, it's, the reason it's called the fourth is because people experience three other states, it's called the fourth. But the implication is not the fourth because it alone exists and the other three states do not exist. But then what he says about Churiya Tita, 
Um, there's a good reason why he says this. That is, some texts uh, in the early days, from the time of Godapada, this fourth state was referred to as Churia, Churia. But some later texts began to refer to it as Churia Tita, um, which literally means beyond the fourth or transcending the fourth. But many people misunderstand and misinterpret this, this term, claiming that it refers to another state, a fifth state, that is beyond Churia. So in this verse, Bhagavan clarifies that what is called Churia Tita is actually the same state that is called Churia. And that it is called Churia Tita because it is the only state that actually exists. And hence it transcends not only the other not only the other three states, namely waking, dream, and sleep, but also any need for it to be called the fourth. That is, the fourth is not really an appropriate term, so it's referred to as beyond the fourth. Um, but it doesn't mean it's a different state, it's the same state, but it's just a, a it's meant to clarify the fact that though it's called the fourth. It's beyond all enumeration. We can't call it the fourth because it's the only state that exists. So, though waking, dream, and sleep seem to exist in the deluded view of ego, they do not actually exist. So, they are just a false appearance. Therefore, the one and only state that actually exists is called the fourth, just as a concession to the deluded view of those who experience the appearance of the other three states. And it is called the fourth transcending, Churiatita, to remind us that it transcends any scope for it to be enumerated as the fourth. So there's just that one real state, whether it's called Churia or Churiatita, it is, the state is one, and that is the only state there is. That's our real nature. Um, in this verse, Bhagavan describes what is called the fourth, Churia, as Nanavutuil which means waking sleep, just like Jagrat Shushupti in Sanskrit. In other words, that is, Jagrat Shushupti is a term often used in Vedanta, waking sleep. The Tamil equivalent is Nanavutuya, which is the term Bhagavan uses here. But it just means waking sleep. So why is it called waking sleep? It is so called because it is the state in which we are eternally and immutably awake awake to the one and only thing that actually exists, namely our own real nature, Atmasarupa, which is Satchitananda, pure being, awareness, happiness, and the state in which we're awake to that and asleep to the appearance of multiplicity, which is entirely unreal. So in other words, we're awake to the real, we're asleep to the unreal. So it's called waking sleep. Um, even when we seem to have risen as ego, and therefore experience the three unreal states, namely waking, dream, and sleep, our real nature is immutable. So we have never actually left this state of waking sleep, which is our natural state, our Sahaja Stiti, as Bhagavan called it, or Ike Nile, our natural state, uh, as we shall discover when we investigate our keen ourselves keenly enough to see what we actually are. That is, now we seem to have left that state of wakeful sleep. But if we investigate ourselves to see what we actually are, we will find that we have never left it. We have always known only Churia and nothing other than Churia. But now we seem to be knowing other things. We seem to be knowing three other states, in two, two of which we know all this multiplicity. But that's all just an appearance. 
Uh, it, does, it, it doesn't actually exist, as Bhagavan says. Um, Bhuva Mandukya Upanishad tells us that this Atman, ourself, has four padas. Only one of those uh, four padas is real. In other words, the fourth pada alone is real, as Bhagavan says. The other three states are unreal. And the other three are just an unreal appearance because they seem to exist only in the view of ourself as ego and not in the clear view of ourself as we actually are. Since the three matras of Om, namely Ar, U, and Im, uh, represent the three unreal padas, namely waking, dream, and sleep respectively, the true import or reality of Om is not to be found within the syllable Om itself, but only in the one real pada, namely the amatra or silence, that remains alone after the cessation of the sound Om. And not only does it remain alone after the cessation of the sound Om, it is also the ground or adhara that underlies and supports the appearance of the sound Om. So whether the sound Om is present or absent, the underlying silence that, that supports its appearance is the, is the reality of Om. So Om is that which, is, though, it, though it's a word, is pointing to something beyond itself, beyond the word itself, to its underlying reality. So, om, so what Omkara actually signifies is that underlying uh, reality, the infinite silence of Satchit Ananda. Um, as I explained earlier, from the perspective of Bhagavan's teachings, we can infer that what the sound om represents is the transition from pravritti, pravritti means the rising, of, as, uh, rising as ego, facing outwards and engaging in activity, to nivritti, facing inwards and thereby withdrawing from all activity and subsiding back into our source, which is the silence of pure awareness, the state of just being as we actually are. So it's that transition from this outwardness to inwardness, from, from rising to subsiding, this, uh, this return to, back to our real nature. So, um, so Om represents the path, and the silence in which it ends represents our goal. Whereas the goal is real, the path to it is unreal, because the path is necessary only for ego, which is itself unreal. However, though the path is unreal from the perspective of our real nature, Atmosarupa, it seems to be real from the perspective of ourself as ego. And until ego merges back forever in our real nature, the path of turning our attention back within to face ourself alone is absolutely necessary because it is the only means by which we can uh, merge in our real nature in such a way uh, that we will never rise again. That is, so long as there is ignorance, we need to invest, so long as we are ignorant of our real nature, in other words, so long as we take ourselves to be something other than what we actually are, we need to investigate ourselves in order to know what we actually are. But when we know what we actually are, we know that the previous ignorance and the effort to get rid of the ignorance, both were equally unreal because what, what we are ever as we actually are. So from, from the ultimate perspective, the, the, even the path is unreal, but that doesn't mean it's not necessary. So long as we rise as ego, the path is absolutely necessary. Um, 
Um, but uh, why, considering all this is necessary, we need to understand. But what Om, the Om is is representing the means to reach a goal, but the reality of Om is not the means, but the goal to which it leads. In other words, our own real nature. And how do we reach our own real nature? Only by holding on to ourselves. So ultimately, the path is the goal. But so long as it seems to be something that we do with effort to hold on to self-attentiveness, it, it is, in the final analysis, unreal. But when we when we find it to be our real nature, then it is real. So it's real as our real nature. It's unreal as an as, as the effort that it seems to be, so long as we are uh, uh, rising as ego and therefore following this path. Um, there are, of course, many different ways in which the three mantras of Om, namely Ah, U, and Im, have been interpreted. As we have seen, the Mandukya Upanishad interprets them as representing the three states of waking, dream, and sleep. Others interpret them to mean expansion, contraction, and cessation, implying the expansion, contraction, and cessation of ego and all its progeny, namely phenomena. Or, they, or it's described as the beginning, the middle, and the end. Adi, uh, um, uh, Madhyam, and uh, Antam, the beginning, the beginning, the middle, and the end of all things. Or it's described as Shristi, Stiti, uh, Samhara. In other words, creation, sustenance, and dissolution of the world. Or, it's, or, or they're described as Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, who are the, respectively the creator, the sustainer, and the destroyer of the world. These are just a few of the many ways in which uh, Om is interpreted. However, from the perspective of Bhagavan's teachings, it seems to me that the most appropriate way to interpret these uh, three matras is to say that the natural flow from R to U to M represents the transition from pravritti to nivritti, which is achieved by us gradually withdrawing our attention from all other things by patiently and persistently trying to turn it back within to see what we ourselves actually are. Because this is the interpretation that is most closely aligned with the practice of self-investigation and self-surrender, which are the central focus of Bhagavan's teachings. That Bhagavan's teachings are all about practice because Though Bhagavan's teachings are extremely deep philosophy, he hasn't taught this just for the sake of teaching some nice philosophy. He's taught it for us to put it into practice. And the practice he taught us is self-investigation and self-surrender, which means turning our attention back within and subsiding into our source. That is what is represented, that transition from our present state of outwardness to slowly withdrawing our attention from outer things and turning it within more and more and more. This is that transition from R to U to Im, you know, the grand, gradual subsidence. Um, this is not an interpretation I've heard or read anywhere, but it occurred to me while I was writing here, while I was writing this, while I was drafting this article but on which I'm basing this talk, while I was writing this, um, and I was uh, 
des describing about these three mantras and how they coalesce smoothly and euphonically with a steady closing of the lips to form the sound om. And uh, so this idea just occurred to me. And as with all original ideas, explanations or insights that occurred to me while thinking, talking or writing about his teachings, I believe this was given only by Bhagavan. So I'm not depending on any external authority for this interpretation. This is an interpretation that came to me. But if, if this interpretation is, if there's any truth in this interpretation, it comes only from Bhagavan, not from me. It's, uh, that is Bhagavan. When we think about his teachings, he gives us, he gives us greater clarity from within. So certain things become very clear to us by, by thinking about, and of course, most importantly, trying to put his teachings into practice. Um, this interpretation of, uh, but it's a transition from, uh, um, from, um, <coughs> from uh, uh, prabriti to nivriti. This actually corresponds very well to one of the classical interpretations of uh, Om. As I said, one of the interpretations of Om is that uh, but, but these three mantras represent expansion contraction and cessation. I, I'm not sure, or at least I can't offhand remember what the Sanskrit terms are, but in Tamil it is said, viritel means expansion, odungal uh, 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 means contraction, and oidal means cessation. So we, we go from expansion outwardness to contraction, that means contracting, and finally to cessation. So actually this interpretation, because the, the expansion is a result of pravriti. The transition from uh, pravriti to nivriti is the contraction. And the final state of complete nivriti, complete withdrawal, complete cessation, is, is the cessation. So in, though... Um, I, as far as I'm, a, I don't, I, I have never come across anyone explaining Om as being the transition from pravriti to uh, nibriti. Um, it is in a way implied in this, in, in the interpretation of Om as being uh, the, the three, these three matras as being expansion, contraction, and cessation. So it's not, it's, though, though it's, uh, it's uh, perhaps a new idea that Bhagavan gave me. It is. It's not without. Um, uh, in a way, it's been hinted at before by saying that these three letters mean expansion, contraction, and cessation, um, uh, which I think is one of actually one of the best ways of describing it. Um, but why there are so many different interpretations of Om is that it is. It's. There are many different, many different philosophies, but correspond to many, but are appropriate, but, but correspond to many different spiritual paths, and the different spiritual paths are appropriate to people at different stages of spiritual development. So you'll often hear that Om, that people often emphasize that Om is the is the seed of creation. From all creation has emanated from Om. For those who are much interested in 
pravritti in going outwards, saying that Om is the seed of creation, is very meaningful. But it's not only, it, when it is said it's the seed of creation, we shouldn't forget that it's not only creation and sustenance, it is also most importantly of all destruction, the samhara, that is the work of Shiva, destroying everything. And everything is destroyed by our turning our attention back within, by our withdrawing from the pravritti, and uh, subside uh, that that withdrawal from pravritti is what you call nibriti, and thereby we subside back within. So this is the the deeper and the ultimate uh, significance of Om. But as I say, there are innumerable different interpretations of Om, and they're all appropriate because they're appropriate from different perspectives. But um, this is the what is given in the uh, Manduki Upanishad and what I've been discussing now, this is the deeper interpretation of Om. And ultimately, the Manduki Upanishad makes clear what Om ultimately refers to, though it is said to have four padas, it ultimately refers only to the fourth pada, which is the silence that remains after Om. Um, so I, I've spoken for a long time now about just the first word of this verse, but the, the what Bhagavan says in this verse about Omkara becomes uh, clear only when we, we have at least some appreciation of what the significance of this term Omkara is. As I say, Omkara uh, means the, the syllable Om. And what is the significance of the syllable Om? That's what we... Uh, discussed till now. So we are now in a better position to appreciate what Bhagavan says about it in this 13th verse of Akshramlai, which begins with the compound term Omkarapparo, uh, which means substance, reality, import, or referent of Om. Uh, this compound is formed of two words, the first of which is Omkaram, uh, which means the syllable om, and the second of which is poral, which is a, an extremely important word in Bhagavan's teachings. And it's one that has a broad range of meanings. Its principal meaning is the same as vastu in Sanskrit, namely the one real substance, the reality, the only thing that actually exists. And this is the sense in which Bhagavan generally uses it. But like vastu, it can also uh, mean a thing. Anything is a vastu you, or a poral. You can refer to any object. For example, in, in Ulidunapdu, Bhagavan often uses this word poral to refer to, um, to, to the one real substance, the absolute reality. In other words, our own real nature. But in one verse, he uses it. He says, um, just like one would like sinking in water to find some to retrieve something that has fallen in water. But what he uses the thing there is poral. So that their poral doesn't refer to the, the real substance. It's just referring to a thing. So like Ambastu also refers to any object or anything or entity. Is is a poral or vastu? Poral and vastu also are used to mean property or wealth. Um, if someone has lots of uh, property, he's got to say he's got lots of poral, uh, lots of vastu, um, and it also means subject matter. So the subject matter of a thesis or of um, anything, the subject matter of a film or a book or something, that's also the poral of it. Um, but unlike Vastu, 
Poro also means the meaning or import of a word. In other words, the referent or thing that a word refers to or denotes. Therefore, Omkara Poro means substance of Om in the sense of the one real substance or reality that the syllable Om refers to or denotes, namely Brahman, which is ourself, Atman, as we actually are, uh, the one indivisible uh, pure awareness called the fourth. That is what, uh, that is what, so Brahm, uh, that the, what Bhagavan refers to as the uh, Omkara Puru, the substance of Omkara, is Brahman or this, uh, the, the state of pure awareness called the fourth, which is our own real nature. Um, the Omkara Puru, uh, substance of Om, is nominative in form. In this verse, it is used in a vocative sense, addressed to Arunachala. That is, Bhagavan is addressing Arunachala as substance of Omkara, Omkara Parol. Um, so what Bhagavan implies here is that Arunachala is the one real substance, Parol or Vastu, that the syllable Om refers to, namely Brahman, which is the one eternal, infinite, indivisible, and immutable pure being awareness, Satchit, which is what shines in the heart of each of us as our fundamental awareness, I am. So that is the, 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 what Om is ultimately referring to. So that's what he refers to as Omkarapuru. And that is Arunachala. So Arunachala is itself that which Om is ultimately referring to. And Arunachala is our own real nature. Arunachala is Brahman. Since this alone is what actually exists, there is nothing like it equal to it or superior to it. So he addresses Aranachala next as Opu Vievu Illoi, you for whom there is not any equal or superior. Um, Opu means likeness or similarity. And here it implies anything that is equal, similar, or like. Weavu means loftiness, height, elevation, eminence, or greatness. And here it implies anything that is higher or superior. Il is a negative that denies existence. That is in Tamil, there are two negatives. There's al and il. Al uh, denies, um, uh, denies an identity or a property or a quality or a, a, an adjunct. Whereas ill denies existence. So illoy is which illoy is a second person composite noun. So it means you who are not, literally, but in this case it means you for whom there is not. So opu weavu illoy means you for whom there is not opu or weavu. There is not anything that is equal, similar, or like, nor anything that is higher or superior. So it implies you who are without equal or superior, or you who are unequaled and unsurpassed. This is used here as evocative addressing Arunachala. So it implies that he is that for which there is neither anything that is equal, similar, or like, nor anything that is higher or superior. The reason for this is quite simple, uh, is that Arunachala is Brahman which is one only without a second, etkameva advaitim, as it said in the Upanishads. That means that he, he, is, he is the only thing that actually exists. Uh, 
So since there's nothing other than Arunachala, how could there be anything that is similar, equal, superior, or, or similar, equal, or superior to him? Obviously, there cannot be. That's why he, after describing Arunachala, the, the reality to which the word Om refers, he then said, you are without equal and without any, there's not, nothing equal to you and nothing superior to you. So since, Aranach, since nothing other than Arunachala actually exists, other than himself, who could ever know him or even comprehend him? Therefore, in the main clause of this verse, Bhagavan asked, Uneya Ariba Arunachala, who can know you Arunachala? Une is a poetic abbreviation of unne, uh, the accusative form of the uh, second person singular pronoun. So it means you. Ya is an interrogative pronoun that means who. And ariba is, is a future or predictive third person plural or honorific form of the verb ari to know. So it literally means uh, they will know. So une ya ariba means who will know you. Um, but in this context, it implies who can know you. Um, that literally means who will know you, but implies who can know you. That is, since Arunachala is pure awareness, how can he ever be known as he actually is by anything or anyone other than himself? Pure awareness can never be an object of awareness, so it can never be known by anything other than itself. What knows other things is only the mind, namely ego, which is the knowing element of the mind. And the mind is just a reflective form of awareness that shines by borrowing the light of pure awareness. In other words, pure awareness is the original and only real light, and it shines in the mind, which is the adjunct conflated awareness I am this body, as its fundamental awareness I am. But instead of using this light to know itself as it actually is, namely as pure awareness, the mind misuses it to know the appearance of other things. In, in order to know itself as pure awareness, the mind must turn its attention back within, in other words, away from all other things, back towards itself, to face its own fundamental awareness, I am. But as soon as it knows itself as pure awareness, it ceases to be mind and remains as pure awareness, as Bhagavan implies in verse 22 of Uludunapadu. What he says in this verse is, Matiku oli tandu, a matikul olirum, matiene ulle madaki, patil, paditidatalandri, patie matial, matitidatal engun mati. It's a very beautiful verse, but it's very simple, but very deep in meaning. What this means is, except by turning my mind back within, completely immersing it in God, who shines within that mind, giving light to the mind, how to fathom God by the mind, consider. If we slightly expand, that means, except by turning, or that word that he uses for turning is... Uh, um, um, <coughs> uh, um, madaki, that means uh, bending or folding, but it implies here turning, mati, mati means for mind or intellect, uh, back within, and thereby completely immersing 
or embedding or fixing it in Pati. Pati means the Lord or God, uh, who shines as pure awareness within that mind, giving light, giving light, that means the light of awareness to the mind, how to fathom uh, or investigate and know God by the mind, consider. Paditidutal is a verbal noun that means immersing. And in this context, it implies that the mind must dissolve and lose itself completely in God, who is the light of pure awareness, but always shines in the mind as I am, thereby giving the mind the light of awareness by which it knows all other things. As Bhagavan implies in the Kali Vemba version of this verse, in which he added the relative clause, Ebeyom Kanam, uh, which sees everything uh, before the first word of this verse, matiku, which means to the mind. So he's thereby indicating that it is the mind alone that sees or knows everything other than itself. But how does it see and know other things? Only by the light that it borrows from the pure awareness I am. So rather than using, misusing this light to know other things, we should use it to know ourselves. In other words, we should turn our attention back within. To, to face the source of light, um, which is what is shining in our heart as I am. Uh, since the very nature of the mind is to always know things other than itself, it cannot know God, who is pure awareness, except by turning back within and thereby immersing itself in him so completely that it loses itself entirely in him, thereby ceasing to be anything other than him. In other words, the mind can know God as he actually is, only becoming by becoming food that is swallowed and completely assimilated by him. As he implied in the final sentence of the previous verse, namely verse 21 of Ulujanapadu, in which, which he ended by saying, Unadal Khan. Unadal Khan means becoming food is seen. In other words, only by becoming food to God or to our natural can we really see him. Therefore, when the mind is devoured by God, namely Arunachala, who is pure awareness, who is it that sees or knows him? It is only himself, because the mind that sought to know him as he actually is had thereby dissolved in him as him, meaning that it had ceased to be anything other than him. Therefore, it is Arunachala alone who can know Arunachala, as Bhagavan implies by asking him rhetorically, who can know you, Arunachala? So if we seek to know Arunachala, we must turn our attention back within, because Arunachala is what's shiny in our heart at that fundamental awareness I am. If we turn our attention back within to know him, we will thereby lose ourselves in him. In other words, we will, swallow, we will be swallowed by him. He will take us as food. And when, when we are swallowed by him, in other words, when we merge in him, we remain as him. We dissolve in him as him. And only when we, when we remain as him, only by being our natural can we know our natural. So um, uh, it, it's, we may start off on this spiritual path thinking that we are going to know our real nature. That is, we as ego uh, set out wanting to know our real nature. But 
by uh, as soon as we know our real nature, which is pure awareness, we cease to be ego and remain as pure awareness. So what knows pure awareness is only pure awareness. What knows real our real nature is only our real nature. So it it is never ego that knows itself. It is only our self that knows ourself. And our self, our real nature, always knows itself. So that, as Bhagavan said, there's not any new knowledge to be attained. The knowledge that is always there, already there, is, um, is seemingly concealed by the superimposition of the false awareness, I am such and such a person. But what is re in that false awareness, I am such and such person, I am Michael or I am whoever, what is real is only I am. But the person we seem to be is unreal. So if we remove this false awareness, I am this person, I am this body, what remains is the real awareness I am. So what knows the real awareness I am is only the real awareness I am. So there's a, a verse in, um, in uh, Sadrom has expressed it very beautifully in one verse in, in He's written a song, uh, well, he's written so many songs, but one of the songs he's written is a song called Aranachala Bemba. It's a hundred verses on Aranachala. And in verse 39, he says, Tahunta vicharamenam sadhane se dulle, Puhundu arindain endru uraital poyam. Ahande, Arivadu ondrum ille. Arivadu. Tane arivadu aranachalam. What that means is um, if any person were to say that by, um, by, uh, by doing the, the sadhana of, uh, of, uh, of proper uh, self investigation, he had, but uh, one had gone within and known oneself. If, we, if I say, doing this practice of self-investigation, I went in and I knew myself. If any person says that, it is poyam, it is false. Why? Ahande arivadu ondramile. Ego is not going to know anything. What is going to happen? Ego is going to die. It's going to be destroyed. Tane arivadu aranachalam. What knows oneself is only aranachalam. Sadhuam also translated that into a, a verse in English. Um, a, a naked lie then it would be if any man were to say that he realized the self diving within through proper inquiry set in. Not for knowing but for death, the good for nothing egos were. Tis Aranachala alone, the self by which the self is known. So when Bhagavan says, it means we can never know him. We can only lose ourselves in him. How do we know him? Only by becoming food to him. Only by surrendering ourselves and allowing him to swallow us completely. Then what remains is only Arunachala. So it is Arunachala alone who will know Arunachala. It's Atmasarupa alone that can know Atmasarupa. Brahman alone can know Brahman. These all different ways of saying the same thing. So we as ego, we as this person, if I say I, Michael, am self-realized, that is 
patent falsity because Michael can never realize itself. Even the ego that is now aware of itself as I am Michael can never know itself. Michael will never be self-realized, nor will ego ever be self-realized. What is self-realized is what is always self-realized, is our own real nature. So what is called self-realization or self-knowledge or Atmanyana, Atmasakshakara or um, Vidya or whatever, whatever it's called, it is nothing but the dissolution of ego. That is the speciality of Arunachala. Arunachala mena ahameinine pava ahateve rarupai Arunachala. That is, if we think of Arunachala deeply enough in our heart, Arunachala is that which is always shining in our heart as I. So if we think of him deeply enough, he will swallow us. So he, as Bhagavan says in that first verse of Akshramai, you, Arunachal, you root out the ego of those who think of you in the heart as Arunachal, or those who think of you, uh, who, who think that Arunachal alone is I. We can take it either way, both ways it means. But what it means is this ego will never know Arunachal. Ego will just be swallowed by Arunachal. And Arunachala alone will remain knowing Arunachala. Arunachala means Brahman Atmasarupa, our own real nature, what we actually are. That always knows itself. It is never self-ignorant. Self-ignorance, avidya is only for ego. Ego is it, as Bhagavan said, ego is itself avidya. So this avidya can no, never know vidya. Avidya can lose itself in vidya, and vidya alone remains. So Arunachala alone will remain, knowing Arunachala as it always is. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya. <laughs>